Greetings, rare ones. My name is Joanne, and I started the Rare Birds podcast because I wanted to hear from people like myself who come from emerging markets or the developing world, as we're called, who are entrepreneurial, resourceful, passionate, and energized to take their vision from idea to startup. Each week, you will hear me interview founders and teams from across emerging markets who are in the early stages of building their businesses. From time to time, you will also hear me speak with established ecosystem builders, mentors, investors, and business professionals who share knowledge based on their years of experience. This podcast is for anyone who is interested in hearing from the next wave of change makers across emerging markets, building in various industries from agro to tech to health, beauty, and all in between. This podcast is also for those who have ideas, but they're not entirely sure how to make them a reality. They're looking for inspiration and encouragement. We call ourselves Rare Ones. And if this sounds like you, then welcome to the family. Sit back, relax, and listen in to our always so good conversation. Bye for now. Greetings, Rare Ones, and welcome to the Rare Birds Podcast. And I'm your host, Joanne, back this week with another episode. And today we are joined by Yah Adam, who is joining us from, is it Maryland, Yah? Maryland, yeah? Yes, well, <laughs> I grew up in Maryland, but I'm currently in Atlanta right now. Oh, Atlanta, I knew, okay. I knew, I knew you were in the US. I thought it was Maryland. Okay, but you're in Atlanta at the moment, but originally... Uh, well, you're going to tell us your background. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Adam. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's lovely to have you here. It's very early in the morning for you, very uh, getting late in the night for me. And we're chatting across time zones. It's, it's incredible. I love this. It is. Yeah. So yeah, Adam, tell us a little bit about, about you and your background. You have this fascinating story. Please share it with us. All right. Well, so hello, everyone. Again, my name is Ya Adam Fai. I am half Gambian, half Tanzanian. Uh, my father is from the small and beautiful country of Gambia, and my mother is from the vibrant Tanzania. So mm -hmm. I am cultural on both ends. Um, my parents met in Sweden um, back in the 1970s. Mm. And my mother's father uh, was the ambassador to the Netherlands, but lived in Sweden. Mm. And my dad been doing his undergraduate degree. Um, and they met in the club. Uh -huh. They were in the club. <laughs> in the club. And he, my dad asked my mom to dance and she said no. Uh -huh. He asked her three times and each time she was insisted on saying no. And the fourth time he came over and was like, look, you're going to be my wife one day. What? And yes. What? He had game. Okay. He had game. He's like, you're going to be my wife one day. And my mom was like, she was so shocked that she was like, oh, fine, whatever. So she gave up, gave <laughs> in and they danced and here we are. Um, they've been married, what? I don't really know. How old is my oldest sister? 39? And we're 16. 
So it's <laughs> so his game worked. He was like, listen, if I tell her she's gonna be my wife, she's just she's either gonna do one of two things. She's gonna she's gonna just totally capitulate or run away. So yeah. yep, yep, and she gave in, and six kids later, um, six kids just, later, my word. yeah, I am number four. Um, That's quite the story. Number. I love that story. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Yep. Um, so they end up getting married, and um, my um, my mom, my dad is Muslim, um, so we were born and raised Muslim, and my mom um, was born Christian, um, and I believe um, two years, two three years into the marriage is after she converted. Mm, um, interesting. Yeah. Usually that yeah. happens before, like during the courtship process, you know? Well, so in Islam, um, a man can marry a non-Muslim. Woman. Yeah, I know. But it's not like that the other way around, though. No, a woman has to marry a Muslim man. Yeah. But um, usually it's preferred if the conversion happens at least before, like, you, you get married and, and have... Yeah, and but stuff. you don't yeah. have to. My dad didn't ask my mom to convert. Right, um, right, right. You know, she went into the marriage as she was um, Christian born and raised. Um, it was after they moved to Gambia from Sweden and having my two older sisters um, mm. that she immersed into the culture and the religion while in Gambia and decided on her own to convert. Um, and, you know, Christians and Jews, people of the book, as they say, don't have to convert. They, they, they don't have to. It usually depends on the family, like how strict, how conservative the family is you hear about conversions and yeah. stuff yeah yeah exactly um yeah so born and raised in gambia until gambia. the age of eight when the coup happened in gambia um and because both my parents were in the government at the time we actually <laughs> we actually came to the u.s as refugees oh um, wow interesting yeah my parents my parents both were here in D.C. at a World Bank meeting. In the middle of the World Bank meeting, the staffer came to them and said, I don't know what government you're representing, but you no longer have a government in Gambia. And that's how they found out about the coup. Mm. Um, and they were advised not to go back, given that, you know, my mom was a strong, uh, <laughs> strong advocate for um, removal of the Gambian military at the time. Um, she it's a small country, a large percentage of the budget was going to maintaining a military and she saw it fit that, you know, we reallocate some of those funds to the infrastructure of the company, um, the country. So mm -hmm. that, that was a little bit of a controversial piece on her end. Um, so they remained in the U.S. They were advised to stay and they filed for us. Um, and um, funny story, we were not able to tell people we were leaving Gambia when we were leaving and they actually came through. Of course um, not. It was like a scene out of that movie. Um, it's a it that would be a security issue for you guys, I think. Yeah, it was like a scene out of The Sound of Music where <laughs> late, late, it was literally, we couldn't tell anyone. Um, it was like a few aunts that knew and like the, the car came at three in the morning and we got in the car, it was quiet and mm. we drove with the car lights off so we wouldn't notice. It was so dramatic and I'm looking back at it now as an eight-year-old and I'm like, where did you drive to at three in the morning? We had to drive through to Senegal. So from okay. Gambia to Senegal. Um, and I remember the potholes. And I remember us hitting uh, uh, some kind of cow at, in, the, in the middle of the road. <laughs> yeah. Now I see why you write books and tell stories. 
<laughs> they broke the windshield and we I mean it was so dramatic but it was so intense and I, and I and I understand uh, at the time it was necessary for us um giving the state of affairs in Gambia and right. we were in Senegal for about two weeks we had to process our documentation and then we came to the U.S. and they referred to us as the six re- six refugees the entire trip oh um, Jesus like we're refugees okay because um, at this time your parents your parents were already working for the world bank right both of your parents no they came they were in the u.s on the behalf of the Gambian government at a world bank meeting i see and okay gotcha it, the world bank is the one who told them ah you guys don't have a government anymore <laughs> um, advised them to um to um apply for asylum status and that's right. what they did right, right. um um, and they filed for us and luckily it only took 11 months which normally can take about much longer than that and mm. we all six of us were able to come um to join them here and you know i think i think it took a few months or a year or so before they both actually ended up working for the world bank okay um, and so we grew up in that in that international development system world bank in uh dc yes in washington dc my mom was um private sector development specialist and my dad's uh, environmentalist yeah yeah that's why i said you were in maryland because i remember when we spoke yeah. we had this conversation about dc and everything like that yeah DC, dmv is home grew up there for sure nice wow that is quite the story yes it is <laughs> Okay, so you went, you you did all your education in the in the U.S., right? Uh, well, yes, I finished um, elementary school in the U.S. I did start school in Gambia at Marina um, International School, but did my finish. I think it was fourth grade or fifth grade. Um, started here in the U.S. Um, and I did middle school, high school, and college, and masters in the U.S. Yes. Mm. At any point, did you? You lived, did you live in Africa at any point as an adult before moving back to America? Yes. So our parents did a really good job of keeping us connected to back home. That's Um, good. That's good. That's always important. Very important. You know, my mom is um, Tanzanian, so her well-off is, which is what um, we speak, well, my family speaks, our tribe speaks in Gambia. Mm -hmm. Um, Her well-off wasn't the best. Um, so our well-off is not the best because, you know, you are part of the environment. So my dad, born and raised in Gambia all his life, speaks really, obviously, really good well-off. So they engaged with us in well-off. Um, um, and then they did a really good job of taking us back home when we eventually could go back after some years, alternating between Tanzania and Gambia every other summer. So we got to go back home and really um, connect with our roots and who we are. Um, Do you speak and- Swahili? I speak broken Swahili. So I actually went back to Tanzania um, the year I was finishing my last year of my master's. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was given, I had the opportunity to go there and live there for a year while I wrote, finished my, out my thesis. Yeah. Um, so I lived there um, for a year and I learned basic street Swahili from the watchman and, and, and the house help. <laughs> mm, okay, good, good. I can't speak it fluently, but I can be in a market and I can negotiate and I can find my way back home. <laughs> mm, well, you know, yeah. basic, the survival Swahili. Yes, basically. Yes, I lived in Tanzania for about a year. Um, and then did you enjoy it there? Living there? I did, but there was a, I did, you know, um, 
being that we proclaim and claim ownership to our Tanzanian side, and mm-hmm. um, there's this bit of thing that happens where when we're in Tanzania, they consider us Gambians. They're like, oh, this was Africans. Um, and we're claiming Tanzania and they're kind of like, yeah, but you're not fully. Um, and there's a little bit of xenophobia in Tanzania, I'll have to say. There's a bit of xenophobia there. Um, so I've heard stories those- about, about Africans, other African nationals being treated very poorly upon entering Tanzania. Yeah, unfortunately. Interesting it's things. a beautiful country and it is, to- it has a high tourism market. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very welcoming. They can be very welcoming. Um, it's but it, then when it comes to the job market is when you see the xenophobia really come out. Wow, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, because it's this idea of you know why are you hiring this African foreigner when you can hire a Tanzanian? Um, and so the job market you will see that companies will have to justify hiring a quote unquote non Tanzanian um, over a Tanzanian counterpart. And they even I believe I'm not sure what it is now, but back then. And this was back in 2010, I think. Um, they had a um, quota. Uh, you couldn't surpass a number of non-Tanzanians in a company. So if, uh, you met, if you met that number, then you were, that was it. So there was, there was these things in place that I, I, I thought were a little xenophobic. Um, and, and of course, if you didn't speak the language fluently as well, it was, <laughs> you, were, you were frowned upon. Um, but yeah, apart from that, though, it's a beautiful country. Um, we, I loved it. I, 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 I love going there all the time. Um, I even took my husband there when we first got married for our honeymoon. That's where we went. I was like, let's go home. Nice. Um, He's Tanzanian yeah. as well? No. So my husband is from born Cameroonian, but grew okay. up in Gambia. Okay, okay, okay. Wow. Yeah. But you guys have got, you guys are Pan-African. Yes, we are. So he claims Gambia. <laughs> nice. Do you ever get the whole, like, when you're in Gambia, people say you're not Gambian because you're half Tanzania. And then, like you said, when you're in Tanzania, oh, you're not really Tanzanian, you're Gambian. Do you, do you deal with that a lot? Yeah. Yes, to some degree. But mm. in Gambia, we're a lot more welcomed. Um, mm. okay. we, do, we do get a sense of um, a bit of a side eye from people. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like we do get a little bit of side eye from people because because our mother is not Gambian, and we spend time apart from Gambia. As you know, but my sisters grew up in Gambia until they were fifteen, sixteen, so they were immersed in the culture much longer than we were. But there is the sense that your, our mother is not Gambian, so you're not Gambian. You're not Gambian enough. We didn't grow up in that. Gambian, true Gambian environment and culture and get immersed in it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, 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 and I, now I understand a woman really does run the household. Um, so while, you know, there's some cultural aspects and traditional aspects of the Gambian culture that, you know, a typical Gambian would follow and be a part of, we, we just, we don't relate to it, nor yeah. do we adhere to it most of the time because it's not something we know or grew up. Um, yeah. Like the culture of, like for example, there's this culture of I'm um, going to, they call it helps. Like literally, it's it's weddings and and they naming ceremonies and and um, any event like all of women, that. 
Yeah, women go and they make outfits and it's gold jewelry and it's very elaborate and they all show up for each other all the time. Now, mm-hmm. my mom friends in Indian, she didn't grow up in that. Um, you know, the few friends that she did have while living in Gambia for all these years, she she did attend the events, but it wasn't something that we grew up in. So for us, even living back in Gambia in 2018, it was just like, yeah, no. If you're not really my friend or family, I'm not going to show up to your event and just to show out, kind of. Um, mm. Just small things. Even when I got married in Gambia, you know, there were things that they insisted that was cultural and traditional. And to me, I was like, yeah, no, we're going to pass on that. And we've gone away with it because, you know, we can rely back on, ah, no, we didn't grow up in that. You so know, do, you, gonna... do they call you the American as well? Do you get that too? Like, oh, they're American, the Yankees, um, whatever names. No. Not American. They call us nyak. Nyak is like um, I believe it's it's an outsider. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Like, you know, Westerner kind of vibe. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Just not from here. Period. Yeah. You know, you do. You grew up in the out. You know, they call <laughs> it. You know, so but Gambians have are, are much have. We consider ourselves Gambians first before we consider ourselves Tanzanian. So Pagamians have embraced us to some degree. Um, they do look at us funny. Um, they, there is a sense of we don't really know you guys. We don't understand you to some degree. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's been a bit challenging at times, especially when it came to our business. Yeah, people are always going to try to foist their their concept of, of what they think you should be, their identity on you. I don't know why people do that, but I mean... Your parents met, they got married, they had six kids. You can't control the fact that you're half Tanzanian, half Gambian. I don't know why people do that. It's, I think it's really stupid. <laughs> it's like how you identify is how you identify, you know? It's not for somebody else to, to voice that on you. But yeah, I think as we get older, we grow out of these things though. But when you're younger, it's really difficult, I think, to navigate that. Yes, it is, can be. At the times we were like, so where do we belong? Mm. Um, but, you know, um, I, I say my parents did a good job of making sure we were connected despite us living in, in the U.S. That's good. That's good. So now let's talk about your business that you have with your sister, which is very exciting. Tell us about that. Yes. So how old is Halima? Um, so 13 years ago, we came up with this idea to write a children's book. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister, my older sister, Anna, um, was pregnant at the time with the first grandchild to my parents in the family. Um, mm, that's a big deal. Yeah, we found out it was going to be a girl, so we were all excited. I mean, I was, I believe I was, what year? I was in college. I think that was my freshman year of college or sophomore year. And um, we were so excited. I remember coming home. Uh, we went to Barnes & Noble, um, which is a local bookstore here. Um, and we were looking for books to buy her. You know, the black princesses, we had the African princesses stories about our beautiful continent, stories where we just, she would see herself in these stories with representation of, of, of people of color. Mm. And we couldn't find anything. Literally, there was nothing at Barnes and Noble, especially in the area we were looking for. Um, so we were like, all right, fine. And we ended up going on a trip um, to Ethiopia after Halima was born. I believe she was about a year old because my mom was stationed there with the mm. African at the time. And we, one day we were just inspired by the beautiful landscape in Ethiopia. I mean, Ethiopia is a beautiful country. 
Um, so that's, we just sat down and my sister grabbed her laptop and we wrote out the story for Halima and um, named it Princess Halima, The Royal Adventures of Princess Halima. Mm. African. And we typed it up and it was, it was such an amazing story. She loved it. We would read to her all the time, uh, bedtime stories. And then we decided to just actually create a book with illustrations and, and we printed it and it was, we gifted it to some family friends and we realized everyone wanted, everyone was interested in it. Everyone wanted to buy it. We're like, wow, okay. So there's a market for this. So we did our research and realized actually there is a deep void in, um, in this space, in the children's book market. Mm-hmm. Um, so that birthed uh, the Princess Halima series. Um, and then in 2017, we decided to expand um, and create a FI network um, with help from our mother. So our mom is our biggest supporter. She's your angel. Team. She's your angel investor. She's our investor. She mm-hmm. has been this project from the beginning yeah. and has invested her time and most importantly, her money. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, you know, Fine Network is a diverse media and content creation company. We curate African-inspired content for children between the ages of 2 to 12, uh, focusing on telling stories about African history, culture, traditions, and most importantly, it's people. Um, yeah. Three different series. We have the Princess, the Royal Adventures of Princess Halima, the African Princess book series, where we have this brave and courageous princess, and she is all about loving her continent, loving herself, loving her people and this culture and tradition. So based in Western ancient Africa, so this is like 1500 AD, back, back then, um, and she explained decides that you know she's gonna spend the whole summer just exploring different countries um Mm -hmm. now we uh, we do mix fiction and um and and fact in the stories but because we do want to educate our readers on what our beautiful continent has for them um so the idea there behind the royal adventures of the series is that she's going to travel and visit all 54 african countries and nice each adventure you get to learn a little bit about the culture the people the traditions um and just what makes the country so beautiful and so she has three books so far her introductory book and then she has visited gambia and tanzania rightfully so <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah so in the tanzania book you know she visits the serengeti national park she visits um she climbs mount kilimanjaro um and then in the Gambia books, she goes to Kachikali Crocodile Park, um, mm. and you get a little bit about the culture, the food. Um, so that's the Princess Halima book series. And then we also wanted to actually engage boys because you know we have this stereotype, and I think that's actually worldwide. We're supposedly boys don't read, so we were like, hmm. We started a campaign called Bo- Boys Read Too, and we um, put out our books for. Um, Bakari on Safari. So Bakari on Safari, uh, and that's the American way of saying it, but the African way is Bakari. Bakari mm-hmm. on Safari um, is a story about this little eight-year-old boy who lives in the Serengeti National Park and is crazy about wildlife and our beautiful national parks. In the continent of Africa, we have more than 100 national parks. And unfortunately, mm such a horrible job of teaching our kids about not only our countries, but also our beautiful national parks. Um, mm-hmm. So 
his dad is a tour guide in the Serengeti National Park and his mom is a veterinarian. So he's surrounded by these family uh, parents who love and treasure um, what the earth has for us. And so he is um, on a mission to educate African kids and, and all uh, kids worldwide about our beautiful national parks and how we can preserve and protect these wonderful um, landmarks of ours. Um, so that's our second book series. Then we have our third book series called Samba and Butch. Um, and this is just your everyday um, best friends, two boys, two best friends, and the adventures that they go on in your everyday life in this mystical village in the Sahara Desert um, called Makongo Jew. And this story just focusing, focuses on teaching kids just important life lessons. Um, in the first book, it's, it's the importance of, you know, saying thank you when your mom cooks for you. It's the sharing of your parents' love. Um, in one of our stories, um, his best friend, Butch's father is not in the picture. Um, so it's about Sam, Samba sharing his father's love with his best friend, Butch. Um, mm. and, and, and what that means that there is space for your, in your parents' heart for them to not only love your siblings, but also love your, your friends when they take them in. Mm -hmm. um, saying please so those are our, our three book series um that we've, we've launched in the last few years that's so and, lovely and, yeah 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 and what target um, group what's your age the the age of your readers so it's between two to twelve um the bakari and bakari on safari series is definitely your two to five year old age range um samba and butch is probably five to eight um, and then we have the Princess Halima series, I would say it's five to 12. Um, of course, the five-year-old might, would definitely need some help uh, reading the, the book, um, but it's that age range of, of two to 12. So it's, it's, it's just younger kids. Um, you know, it's, as you know, in our African culture, we tend to ignore kids. Kids are, you know, you're not supposed to be, you're supposed to be seen, not heard. Um, mm. We also really horrible job of engaging kids and entertaining them outside of you know sending them to school and saying hey read your school books we don't really give them much content um beyond um our school materials mm. we don't focus on the books we don't focus on engaging them mentally um to be who they are and learn about their beautiful continent outside of their country so that's what you know, we're really trying to push for um in a market you know, the children's book market um, is a $1.9 billion market. Mm. But only 10% of children's books are published by African and African-American authors in this $1.9 billion market. Mm. And we suspect that the number of African authors is even less than 2%. So in that 10% way, they have now clumped all Black people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, know, you know it, all it, Black people are the same, so... Yeah, and you know, in American, in American, <laughs> that, that was being sarcastic. <laughs> I know, in American context, you know, um, and this is an American statistic. So, you know, black, hey, if you're African and African American, we're all in there. They they clump us all together. It doesn't yeah, that's very much an American thing. Yeah, whenever yeah, you, anybody right. anybody goes to America, they just become black. Forget where you're from. It yeah. is black. Yeah, and and it's 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 a, it's a survival, and and mm -hmm. and I. Has, you know is African and has grown up in this culture um, it's, it's a matter of survival and you do have to embrace that fact um, so we suspect that this 10% of children's books that they're saying are published by African African American authors we suspect that even 
um, of that 10%, maybe 2% is actually written by actual African authors. Um, mm -hmm. You will find that um, most African stories out there are actually written by non-Africans. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Specifically white women. Um, mm, and yeah, yeah. Focus on spreading the narrative of a continent in utter despair and in need of saving this white savior complex um, perspective. Mm, mm. Um, so we, we, we're on a mission to, to take this uh, our narrative back and, and tell our stories from our voice. And our slogan is our stories, our way, because it's our stories. And we're going to tell it how we think the world should receive it and how best our children should also receive um, content about our beautiful African continent. Yeah. Why do you think so many foreigners, particularly you said, I guess these are white North American women or are they white, just women from North America and Europe writing mm -hmm. books on the continent? Why do you think that is? Like why? So, why? So 77% of the publishing staff mm -hmm. across the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. And I only know U.S. specifics. I'm not sure about the European are white mm. and 77 percent majority of them are white women right um, okay now i get it okay yeah. thus it is challenging for black authors to get agents and right in order to get an agent to actually get published we had a challenge where we would send our our manuscripts to to agents and the wording we would get back was our story our fine network stories don't speak to them um, and, you know, being a literature agent in, this, in the publishing world is very subjective. It's, it's, um, it's, it's whether, you know, the publishing company finds your story worthy of being told. And as you know, the Black story to many is not worthy of being told, as we've been told many times. So we act, that's why we went the self-publishing route. And yeah, I was going to say, so many people now are just self-publishing, yeah. Yeah, uh, because the market is not there for us and the support is not there for us. So, you know, it, it, with, with, with a 70%, 77% publishing staff that is white, um, you can see why our stories don't relate to them and they don't see the beauty and the importance of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and, and so I think that's why. And, you know, having a publishing company means your book will have marketing dollars behind it and access to a wider audience where, right. you know, if you go go to the self-publishing route which we have done left no choice but a choice that we've embraced um it, it's challenging it's challenging you have to do everything yourself you essentially have to build your community and let the community do the selling for you yes and which is very challenging because you know in of itself us black people have a hard time supporting black people mm. um, <laughs> um so that's 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 another whole other challenge <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. yes yes interesting so that's that's been your struggle uh journey as an as an author and a self-published author but i still think it's it's great like you're doing excellent work and these stories that you're sharing are absolutely necessary and you mentioned um in one of the stories it, it focuses on a girl right and her adventures yes yeah. And I know that's something that you're passionate about. So education and the girl child. What would you like to share with us about that? Yes. Um, you know, as I sit in my privilege and I recognize my privilege. Yeah. Um, we all do. And Yes. And yeah. 
you know, coming from a family, uh, two parents who, you know, education was very important to them and were offered that opportunity to go and get their master's. My mom, I mean, I, I, my mom is literally my hero and, and, and my inspiration. This is a woman who had six kids and, you know, got her master's, double master's from Harvard University and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, worked tirelessly um, throughout our lives to, to get where she needs to get to. And she has such a supportive husband like my dad, who was just as educated with his master's in, in environmental studies and, and was right alongside her, um, pushing her to her greater heights while he sometimes has to take a step back and, and be the family man. Yeah. Um, we sit in that privilege of having, you know, parents who believed in us, supported us and send us to college out of their own pockets. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we walked out of uh, undergraduate degrees, all of us not having a single loan to pay back not having, having our parents set us up in that way mm-hmm. uh, for success. And we, I know that we're coming from a place of privilege mm. and we know that that's not something of, afforded to a lot of young, um, young girls, especially African girls. Um, and so it's, it's very important for us to give back. Um, and so we have what we call the Miss in Action um, initiative that we started here at Fine Network, where it's about really giving back to the girl child. Um, we all focus not only on giving back as education. So we donate books. Um, mm-hmm. And our mission is also to start libraries. Nice. Um, in schools. Because, you know, you'll see in Gambia where um, a lot of the schools don't have libraries. So if they do, it's not child-friendly. And also the book content is not child-friendly. It's not a place where, you know, you see a nine-year-old running to go grab a book and, and immerse themselves in this world um, that the book is offering. Um, and we also focus on engaging them and empowering them to have a voice. You know, in African culture, they tell kids to be quiet. They tell kids you're seen but not heard. And then all of a sudden when they're 18, it's like, ah, so now telling me, what do you think? And it's like, but you groomed me growing up all these years to to be silent. Um, Then you hear these really ridiculous conversations about women don't have confidence, women da-da-da. Of course they don't. Their whole lives you've told them that they are only valued if they're somebody's mother, somebody's wife, and they need to sit there and be cute. So then all of yeah. day you, all of a sudden, they're supposed to be confident. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. And, you know, they, they tell them to sit in their silence in the face of all these adversities they face, whether it's, it's sexual harassment or rape or um, abuse, physical, mental, or social abuse, you know? And, and you'll find that a lot of these girls also are... Um, play such a big part in their household, you know, where the household comes before their education and their own well-being, right. you know. You find a lot of these girls will, you know, go to school, hopefully, you know, if they can. And and, and at, they will be the first to be sacrificed um, when it comes to school fees. If, if we're going through some financial hardship, you know, the brother will continue going to school, but the girl will now be told to stay home and she'll do the cleaning the cooking. And, you know, most girls go to school and come home and still cook dinner and take care of their younger siblings. So it's very challenging for a girl child in Africa. Um, and it's, as an, a woman, as an African woman, you know, it's, it's my duty um, to give back. And so that's been a part of what we do here at Fine Network is engaging um, these younger generations and really helping them to find their voice because they are the future. And we know Africa is as 
complex as beautiful as it is is very complex and for the changes we want to see we really have to focus on this younger generation our parents failed us and i always tell my mom this and i know it always upsets them to some degree I'm like you guys failed us you did your part mm-hmm. um but to some degree you failed us in the sense that our countries are actually worse off than they were when we had independence mm-hmm. um in you know, are, are, you know, and, and then they are the ones still in power. I mean, mm-hmm. my parents, comrades are the ones still in power mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. horrible job. And so now you've also, so now you have us millennials who are um, trying to course correct, but we're not giving that, you know, they, they say they're not giving us that way to read. And we have the experience and the education to make a change in our country. But our parents are not really letting us. And I'm saying parents, not that uh, my parents, but that generation. Um, mm-hmm. So we're trying to course correct. But I really believe that the next generation, these young kids that are under the age of 12 are going to be the ones who are really going to be the change makers in Africa. And we really need to invest in them, especially young girls. We really need to invest in them to have a voice. Um, to really be confident, we need to empower them um, through books mm-hmm. and also the social environment that at no point in time should anyone have the right over your body, your mind, or your soul. You know, it's, it's about finding your voice and, and, and becoming who you're truly meant to be and, and being what you want to be in the face of a society that wants to hold you back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this when we first connected. It's like that generation, the 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 generation, your parents' generation, that not your parents per se, but that generation. They were all about government and like doing things through government and change through government and political independence and all of that stuff. And that era, I think, has we've learned that that era had failed. <laughs> yeah, and now my generation, generation after us, your generation, we're all about like social change cultural change uh economic change it's the the it's completely different it's completely different to the previous generation yeah okay yeah and, and it's definitely and and we now see that you know it's it's going to take more than government action for us um to really become what we want to be and and unfortunately the government is also part of the problem um mm. i mean gambia we see our government just Gambia is a special case. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's very challenging when you have poor leadership um, because, you know, it, the leadership of your country really matters to where you're going to go. Um, so we're hoping, I'm, I'm really hopeful that the next election, which is in 2021, we're going to usher in a new form of leadership in our country that will really bring the country forward, but also invest in, in, in the girl child. Yeah. For sure. But that's a, that's an amazing initiative. And uh, I think it's something that a lot of our listeners can resonate with as well. So yeah, very important. You know, near the end of our podcast, we like to ask our guests to share lessons they have learned from their journey with us. So what's the, I mean, I guess there's many, but if you had to choose one or two or three, what are some of the, the biggest lessons you've learned since you started on your entrepreneurial journey? biggest lesson I've learned um be open Mm -hmm. and honestly go with the flow 
I think that's been the biggest lesson we've learned. Um, where you envision and where you start might not be where you actually end up. And yeah. sometimes the business will actually just go with the market. Of course. Um, and we'll let it evolve. You know, you might have thought you're going to sell t-shirts and next thing you know, you're selling something else. You know, that's what consumers want. They don't want t-shirts. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, you know, um, that as much as you want to stick to your business plan, also let the market guide you because you don't know where that journey is going to take you. And it actually might be better than where you thought you were going to go. Uh, so that's one of the biggest lessons. I mean, we, we started our uh, book and it was just a family thing. And it was like, hey, it's for our Halima. And, and the market told us, hey, you know, there's a market out here for this and people actually want this content. Um, yeah. So, you know, we opened it up. And another lesson I, I think I've learned um, is to be your very own um, ambassador. Um, mm. so be your best marketer. You know, there's no shame in 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 at every chance you get putting your books out there, whatever your business is, putting your business out there. You yeah. will find that promote yourself, right? Promote yourself to the end. It doesn't matter. My sister, <laughs> we have this. Um, <clears throat> We have, we, in Gambia, and I remember, whenever we had meetings, we literally took our books with us. And we'll have whatever type of meeting it is, because my mom also has a consulting firm there. And so, you know, we'll, we work with her on in whatever project we're working on. At the end of it, we'll finish our business. And we'll be like, hey, did you know we have some books? And, yeah. and that became our thing. People will be sort of joking about it. Like, yeah, you know, they always bring those books. I'm like, yeah, because this is what we're passionate about. This is our business. And if no better way to sell it um for us to sell it than and then than have it in your face all the time so promote your business plan to not be shy uh, to put yourself out there at every turn you get you never know where mm. your next sponsorship your next business partner your next investor can be yeah absolutely absolutely i love that that's a great lesson thanks for sharing that with us well where can we find you yeah adam and all of your stuff in socials do you want to share that with us Yes, so you can find out more and purchase your books, which we are shipping within the U.S. for free. Unfortunately, it's just in the U.S. at the time. www.fynetwork.com. And that's F-Y-E network, N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. You also find us on social media, Twitter at Network. Instagram at Fire Network Double N for Instagram and on Facebook as well. Um, and our books also are available on Amazon, which does ship worldwide. But we prefer for you to guys to order your books on our website because Amazon does take 60% royalty. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Okay. These are all the things yep. that we don't know unless we're, we're involved in that. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what about like on the continent? Like, are there any distributors for your books on the continent? Are you in any stores there? How does that work? No, there are no distributors. You know, that's Jesus. been our, our vision is to actually. You got to start one. You got to start one. Yeah. That's, that's our vision to one day set up shop in Gambia where we can actually create a distribution center for just not only our books, but other other authors across the continent where it will be much easier um, for us to distribute African content across the continent. But right now you can't, there is no centralized system, no market for it apart from Amazon, which does ship out there, but it's relatively expensive for the African um, consumer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
Well, yeah. we look forward to that, yeah. This was a really nice conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. I love what you're doing. This is so awesome. I love that you're creating a community um, for us and by us, and, and we get to all learn from each other. This is amazing. Thank you. And I'm so happy that you're a part of it. You're a rare one. So welcome to the tribe. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, that's it, folks. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Yah Adam today. I know I did. And uh, please reach out to her. You've got her socials. Make sure to put all the socials in the um, in the uh, the write-up for the podcast so people can find it there. But in the meantime, you're on social media. So hopefully some people will reach out to you and buy some of your books. That would be really awesome. That would be awesome. Thank you so much for the support. Yeah. So until next time, bye for now. Bye. Hey there, Rare Ones. I hope you enjoyed listening into this week's conversation. The Rare Birds podcast is available for listen across all major platforms, including Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Anchor, and several more. Please share our conversations with your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can do so by opting in on our homepage of our website, www.rarebirdshq.com. The weekly newsletter provides analysis and data around the topics explored in our weekly conversations. Lastly, I would love your feedback and spend way too much time on Twitter. My handle is included in the notes section of each episode. Tweet me your thoughts, ideas, opinions, and feedback because I'm always looking for ways to improve my craft. If you absolutely love what you heard, then rate us on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week for more conversation. Bye for now.